On your seat, or next to your seat, you should see a little card. And uh, can we put the next slide up? And, and it's the card that um, replicates this slide that I talked about last week. As a church, what we've been doing recently, uh, as leaders in church, we've been trying to think about how do you explain the sort of church we are? How do you explain what we're about? How do you um, kind of make sense of the community that we are and that we wish to be? And um, we put together a statement, a sentence, a long sentence, but that highlighted uh, four things probably, four or five things that we thought were really important. We're a growing community of whole life disciples who are alert to God's leading, paying careful attention to one another and the moment we're in so that we can be good news to those around us. And what we wanted to do was to give it you, because the danger with this sort of stuff is that it stays a sentence and we preach a series on it and then it goes in the drawer and no one can remember it. And we wanted to give you something that you could possibly carry around with you to say, actually, that's what our church is like. And I'm explaining yesterday, if you were explaining what your church is like, you might talk about people, you certainly would talk about people. You'd talk about the sort of stuff you do, but actually, there's something about the DNA, about what we want to be. And last week, we talked about that idea of what does it mean to be a growing community, not for our own sakes, but for the sake of the world. And today what I want to do, and I want to do it today and next week, is pick up that phrase, we're a growing community of whole life disciples. This is a, a phrase that um, I've been part of, uh, <laughs> this sounds like I'm blowing a trumpet, and it's, it's, there's no trumpet here to blow, but anyway of popularizing, of popularizing in the church. Whole Life Disciples, what we mean by that um, is a way of following Jesus, an understanding of what it means to be a Christian, an understanding of what it means to be one of his. When you talk about discipleship, for some people, they still think it's a bit like A-level Christianity, whereas they're just GCSE types. It's like for the keen ones. It's like for the ones who really want to make a difference. It's like for the significant Christians. But it's not. Being a disciple is simply the moment you bowed the knee to Jesus. You began to follow him. It's Anne's story. And I want to reflect on Anne's story um, from time to time through this. But when Anne became a Christian, as she said, largely it was about help. Oh, God, I'm in a mess. Help. And what happens is God does help. He recreates us. He starts to put the broken pieces back together again. And then we can become a follower of his. Because he doesn't just go, well, I'll help and sort you out and then leave you to it. But he says, I will help. I will put the broken pieces back together in order that you might follow me. I have the primary call on your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that's quite different than sometimes we can imagine, because sometimes what we think is, being a Christian is we get God to help us. When you just become a Christian, perhaps, and you are in a bit of a mess, you just think, I'll go with anything that will help. And if God can help, I mean, some of you may well have prayed the prayer, God, I don't even know if I believe in you, but if you're there. And that may well be how a relationship with God begins. I don't even know if I believe in you, but if you're there, will you help me sort this out? And then over the years, you grow to know and love this God who does indeed do that. Not in the way you always would imagine, but the God who does recreate you. The God who does put the broken pieces together. And then 
And it may not be at the beginning, but at some stage you hear the call where God says, I need you to follow me. And now it's not just, God, can you help me? But actually, will you follow me? Will you be mine? And at that point, there's a primary call on your life. God says, I want you, and I want you to be my disciple. I want you to learn the way of Jesus. I want you to become my follower. And the the language of whole life simply is that it's every area of your life. And it's every stage of your life. Whether you're young or whether you're not. And it's every moment of life. It's kind of like a commitment to say, this is my whole life. When I was growing up in church, um, we, uh, I grew up in a church where hymns were big. We didn't really use choruses that much, but we used hymns. And one of the hymns we would have sung in those olden days, some of you will remember because you're old enough to, um, but you will have sung along with, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. And it was kind of like a hymn that went into a context where it just said, God, what I have is yours. And there was a sense in which it was about saying, God, it's not what I want. Actually, it's about what you want. And I want to live for you as best I can. And we would keep coming back to that song from time to time. We're a growing community of whole life disciples. You've seen this if you've been around for a while, because I've used it before. But if you look at that uh, table of 100 dots... There are six dots that are in red. It represents approximately, very approximately, the number of people who worship in church once a month or more in the UK. There's 94% of people who, uh, on the whole, don't mind you come to church. They don't really care. Um, and, uh, but it's not for them. 6% of people like you worship in contexts like this once a month or more. And when you look at that, it's easy to imagine that um, we're in margins, we're small, we're minority, it's tough, and all the rest of it. And that can be what it looks like in the corner, sort of um, fighting our own. But actually, that's not where you spend your time. That's where you spend your time. Scattered in all sorts of places. The idea of being a community that creates disciples who live for Jesus in their scattered lives means that actually what we do here in our gathered moments has to equip us in our scattered moments, and our experience in the scattered moments has to shape what we do in our gathered moments. Does that make sense? So you've got that sort of circle going on. So when we gather together as red dots... Let me show you. So today is that. But this time tomorrow will be that. And what we need is for this to make sense of that and for that to shape the way we do this. The questions we face, the challenges, the joys begin to shape here. And then actually we begin to think, well, actually, how can we better equip one another for there? It's kind of like the idea of church, both gathered and scattered. For this to work, two things need to be true. And it's the two things that I'm going to take, one today and one next week. The first thing is, when you scatter, you have to own the place you're in. You have to say, this is where God, at least at the moment, has placed me. 
The fundamental doctrine that we work within is this, that God knows you and oversees your life. The moment you say, God, God, I'm going to live for you, he then is an active participant in your own life. The thing, the difficulty is, it only makes sense in retrospect. It only makes sense when you look over your shoulder. It's kind of interesting because knowing Anne, um, as I have done for the last 20 years or so, I know there have been times when Anne has said, I'm not sure what's going on. I'm not sure why this has happened. I'm not sure how to make sense of this. But on a day like today, she gets the overview looking back and goes, well, I can't actually see some rhyme or reason to it. As someone has said, the problem is uh, life makes sense when you look over your shoulder backwards, but you have to live it forward. It's kind of like you're kind of living forward going, I'm not really sure how this all makes sense. And it's only in retrospect you look over your shoulder going, is there a pattern here? Is there anything that makes sense of what's happened? When I felt God speak to me, when I gave, said yes to God, does it make sense? You have to own the place. Even when, and particularly when, it's not where you'd want to be. Particularly when it's not where you want to be. I read a story this week, and, and you may have come across this story, but I, I'd not come across this story. But apparently, apparently, more people than you might expect run marathons who weren't expecting to. <laughs> All right. So more people run marathons than you might expect who, who never intended it to. And it happens, apparently, really quite regularly. This is one lady, Georgine Johnson. And this was taken in 1990 when she was 42. Georgine Johnson, uh, she's from America and uh, she's in Cleveland. Georgine Johnson um, in Cleveland. And uh, she turned up on one Sunday morning to run a 10K. But she ended up running the marathon. <laughs> because she got separated from her friends in the melee, or uh, all the athletes coming. And she joined the wrong group <laughs> at the start. Because I've been part of this, and nobody, tell, nobody keeps saying, this is the marathon, are you sure you're right? It's not like being on the train, you know. It's like, you, you know, you kind of expect everybody to know. And so she started this race thinking she was going to run 10K. And at 8K, when she was interviewed afterwards, at 8K, she turned to one of the men that she was running beside, and she said, this is a 10K race, isn't it? <laughs> and he said, no, it's 40K, it's 26 miles. <laughs> And she said, she cried. <laughs> you would, wouldn't you? <laughs> so she asked the policeman who was on the, si on, on the sidewalk, um, it being America, um, can, you, can you get me back to the start? I'm not supposed to be in this race. And he said, we have no cars available to do that, madam. I'm sorry. You'll just have to run. So she did. And this was the quote that's been attributed to her. This isn't the race I trained for. This isn't the race I entered. But for better or worse, this is the race I'm in. I think that's a great quote. 
attributed to her. It's not the race I trained for. It's not the race I entered. But for better or worse, this is the race I'm in. Just to finish her story and just to annoy one or two of us, she ran that race in four hours, four minutes. <laughs> I thought that would upset you, Dave. <laughs> 1990. It's not the race I trained for. It's not the race I entered. But for better or worse, it's the race I'm in. I reckon any number of us might say that at times. Any number of us might say that at times. I don't know whether it's just because you get older, but it felt like over the last year, um, just meeting up with people that I was at college with. I was at college when I was 18. And uh, maybe it is just one of those things of being middle-aged that you get in touch with people that you were at college with. People you've not really been in touch with for 30-odd years. And it's really interesting because when you listen and talk to some of them, what you recognize is this is not the life I imagined I would have. And the number of people that I've met that when we started out sort of roughly 18 years old together and now in their mid-50s or a little older in some cases, it's kind of like this is not quite what I imagined it would all be. And I think that's actually true, to be honest. I think that's true for many of us. I think from time to time you end up in places that you think, I didn't think it would be like this. It's not what I trained for. It's not what I entered. But for better or worse, it's where I am. There's something about this idea of being these red dots, these red dots who follow Jesus, and in the midst of the place where you already are, it's kind of saying, okay, Lord, this is not what I would have chosen, but Lord, this is where... I trust you have placed me. Now, there are times when you, you're able to get out of difficult situations. And when you can, I think you probably should. But there's other times where for the best will in the world, it feels like you can't make the changes that you would love to make. And it's kind of like, okay, Lord, so here I am. I trust that you've placed me here. Because your hand is upon me. I want to just uh, very quickly, if uh, you have a Bible, and it is really very quick, it's not, not an exposition any way, shape, or form this morning, it's really just to touch base with you. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 6. And, uh, you know, without any sort of apology, I'm, I'm just wanting to touch on a few verses this morning before we bring it in together. In Acts chapter 6 you have the beginnings of this early church and they come across um, a real problem quite early on in their life together. The early church was a mixed ethnic group made up of Greek Jews and Hebrew Jews. They had different backgrounds, they had different um, understanding of faith at times, but this early church was made up of both groups. And... Um, the other thing that the early church were doing were feeding. They had a feeding program for the widows. You will probably remember, if you were a widow in that day, you, you, would, you were just thrown on, on sort of charity, really. And the early church, what they would do is they would take up offerings and then they would distribute it to people who had no other means of support. And, and a large group of those people were the widows. And um, as you might imagine, as is 
totally human, there comes a moment where these widows start arguing with one another. And this is where we pick the reading up. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, so it's that sort of scenario where people come and go, you are overlooking, you are prioritizing one group of people and you're overlooking my group of people. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. just want to say one really simple thing from that. Out of those seven um, people that are named, we only know about two of them. We know about Stephen because Stephen very quickly will end up being martyred. And the other man that we know about is Philip. And I just want to talk about Philip for a minute. Philip pops up um, in here and he is, can you just flip me through? He's chosen. He didn't choose to do this. He didn't put his name forward. The 12 gather the disciples, they say, we've got a problem, and they go and they find Philip. And the first thing you know about Philip is that Philip is serving on tables. He's trying to deal with a tricky inter-church problem, and he's just doing his best. He's not there because he wanted to be there. He's there because other people said, we think you should do this. The second time you see Philip is in chapter 8. And if you can flick to that relatively quickly, I'm going to pick it up. Um, at verse 1, halfway through verse 1. So what's happened is, uh, really, in between those two passages, all that's really happened is that Stephen has been uh, martyred. But on that that day, a great persecution, chapter 8, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who'd been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. The second time you meet Uh, Philip, he's in Samaria. This is not his people. This is not his land. He's with a people that actually, traditionally, they would have thought themselves as enemies. But he's there. Why? Because there's been persecution. He didn't choose to go to Samaria. He had to go because he had to get out of Jerusalem. The third time you see um, uh, Philip is at the end of that chapter, verse 26. So he has this big miracle revival happening in Samaria. It's all marvelous. And then verse 26, really odd bit. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, okay? So he's in this city. He's leading this big revival. There's loads of people making responses. And now where he is, is he? He's on a desert road. 
So he goes and he starts out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki, which means queen of the Ethiopians. The man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. So he's, he's in the desert. He, the, the only person he can see is this quite elaborate uh, coach, chariot type affair, and he gets alongside this, um, this Ethiopian, who's a eunuch, a little bit Eunuchs sort of, they were always a little bit, people were suspicious of them. They were suspicious on any number of levels. Eunuchs, without going into great detail about this, but eunuchs were, were kind of trafficked people, often. And then they were either castrated or there was something about their manhood that wasn't quite manly. So people looked at them oddly. And Philip, after a brilliant city revival, is sent to the desert and he meets an Ethiopian eunuch. He's in the right place at the right time. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian goes, how, could I how can I understand except someone explains to me? And so he says, well, what are you reading? I'm reading from Isaiah about this suffering servant. Let me tell you about who I think Isaiah is speaking about. I think he's talking about Jesus. And he talks about Jesus to this Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch goes, I want to follow that Jesus. And they pass a pool and the Ethiopian, clearly, um, Philip's been talking to him about baptism, and the, and the Ethiopian goes, is there anything that stops me getting baptized? I just wonder whether he might have imagined, yeah, you're a eunuch. And Philip goes, no, there's nothing that would stop you getting baptized as a follower of Jesus, no matter what people think of you. And so they baptize the Ethiopian, and he goes on his way. Tradition says that the Ethiopian church, one of the oldest churches in the world, was the fruit of that man's ministry. In chapter 8, verse 40, he's whisked away by the Spirit and he appears as Zotus or Ashdod and travels about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So that's kind of like the one time that we've seen Philip having the chance to make a decision. And he goes and he just preaches around as he can, and then he ends up in Caesarea. And then the final time we see him is in chapter 21. And the last thing we know about Philip is this. He's still living in Caesarea, up on the coast there. He's got four daughters. He's a family man. This is Philip. He didn't choose to wait on table. He was chosen. He didn't choose to get involved in a church rook between widows. He didn't, get, he didn't choose to get involved in an ethnic squabble. He was chosen. He didn't choose to go to Samaria, to his enemies. He was scattered, and that's where he ended up. He didn't choose to go to the Ethiopian eunuch where other people might have not wanted to go. The Spirit of God took him there. He didn't choose... Uh, well, he may have chosen to go to Caesarea. This may be the one time he actually chose to go to Caesarea because having done that in the desert, it's like, well, go where you will now. So he went up to Caesarea and then he settles. One man. But I wonder if you can make sense of it in your own life or whether Anne actually helps just as much. From what Anne said earlier in the service, at the age of around 40, 
the pressure of a life that hasn't been what she would have hoped, and she has a nervous breakdown. Didn't choose that. Going around the world, she did choose that. <laughs> but then coming back and the part-time jobs, I remember the conversations with Anne in those days where it was like, I've just had to take these part-time jobs. Not a lot of power, but I'm here and I'm doing this and one of them is St. Anne's and the work at the hospice becomes really important to her and then she hears God say, actually, I think you could all, you've still got, there's still a future looking after children. She misunderstands first what that might mean, but then she finds, actually, it's the fostering. Like All I'm seeing is the fostering ads. All I'm seeing is the fostering ads. I'm assuming that's what God wants me to do next. So I wonder how this works out for you. The problem of uh, condensing Anne's story into three minutes or five minutes here is it sounds cleaner than it felt. And it's a story that took 20 years, not five minutes. And you've got to walk a long way uncertain. But I wonder what, how this helps you. If we're going to be a church, if we're going to be a growing community of people of whole life disciples, you're going to have to work this out where you are. You're going to have to live out this place where you are. You're going to say, this is where God has placed me. It's not where I would have chosen, necessarily. This is not the stage of life that is actually the easiest for me. This is not the context where I would have wished to have been. These are not necessarily even the people I would have wanted to be with. But this is where you've placed me, Lord. And this is where I'm going to serve you. Last slide. So the questions we're left with are these. Where are you? Where am I? What does God want me to do there? What part are you then? You see, there's a problem, isn't there? If when you're in these places that are really uncomfortable, you're just gritting your teeth and holding on and praying for a change. Because actually, you're just looking for the escape. Whereas actually, what God asks you to do is, can you serve him there? What does it mean to be a disciple there? And what would help? Who do you need to help you? What help do you need? You're not called to do this alone. We're called to be a church who enable one another to live as these disciples. Can't promise that all of you will go around the world on a 12-month uh, open ticket. But the art of living as a disciple of Jesus is to be able to, I think, get to the end. And two things. Hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You followed me. And then to have the reveal, this is why you took the path I had for you. This is what it was about. So today, we offer our lives to him again in trust and in hope with the idea being, I'm going to live for him in the place I am, not necessarily just the place I'd love to be. Does that make sense?
going to ask Lorna and the crew to come back. And uh, I, I don't know how this will be for you, but I think statistically it's almost inevitably true. There will be people today, and there's some of you listening, you're going, yep, yeah, that's true, I accept that, I can hear that, I, I understand that as truth. But there'll be others of you that go, that may well be true, but actually I'm really struggling, and I, wanna, I want to live as though I'm in the place where God has placed me, but actually I'm just struggling to see what that looks like right now. And um, because we've got a bit more space this morning, as uh, Lorna and the musicians begin playing, I'm just going to invite you, if that's relevant for you, if there's sort of like a commitment that you want to make uh, to say, Lord, I'm going to live for you well here. I want, I want your spirit to come upon me to enable me to stand firm here. I want to live for your, for your glory here, for your purpose here. If that makes sense for you, I'm going to ask you to just stand. And then we've got folks who will come and pray with you. So if you pray with people, if you're part of that prayer team, just be alert to people who might be standing near you. But if you, you know this morning, this really does, it's kind of like a, a now moment. It's a, a moment that you say, yeah, it's for now. Then do you want to just stand and we'll pray with you. If you're part of a team of people who know how to pray for people, then go and stand with the person. You don't need to ask questions. We don't really need to know the ins and outs, but you just pray blessing on them. You pray that the thing that God's stirring them would be true for them, that they would have courage, that they had the, a sense of knowing what God is doing. If you're not part of the prayer team, but you still would like to pray with someone who's standing, then don't leave them standing there on their own too long. Just turn and pray with them. Pray for them.